me. My name is Logan, and I am the assistant director here at our old Brooklyn campus. Uh, this morning, about 8 or 8.30, uh, a group of adults and young adults uh, embarked on a journey on the adventure of faith. We had, I forget, maybe 45 or 50 people uh, get on a charter bus at our Columbia Station campus and head down to Tennessee to uh, do some of God's good work there for people who need it. So I'm going to say a prayer for them out loud. If you would pray, with, uh, pray for them with me in your hearts, uh, we'll do that, and then we will look at Scripture to see what it is um, God wants to say to us today. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are incredibly grateful that you are the Almighty God. In your strength and in your capacity, uh, you demonstrate yourself worthy uh, to be trusted. In your strength and capacity, you also show yourself to be loving beyond uh, compare. We do ask this morning that as uh, our brothers and sisters travel down to Tennessee, that you would watch over them. We ask that your hand of protection would be on them, on their travels there, on their travels back. We ask that your hand would be on them on the work site and off the work site. And I pray that uh, the goodness of Christ would be evident in their lives to the people who need it. I pray for us this morning that as we look at what it means to uh, join the arena one more time, that you would stir our hearts and souls uh, to be sensitive to your whispers about what it is you ask us to do. I pray that we would have the courage and the faith to trust you in those moments, and that we would say yes to the adventure that you've called us on. I pray that we could be influential for good as a church in this old Brooklyn community, and I pray that Christ would be glorified on account of us. Would you please be with us this morning, I pray. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. About 1,000 years before Christ was born, uh, there was a coastal enemy working their way from west to east. They found their origins on the Mediterranean Sea, and they decided they wanted more land. So the five city-states of the Philistines uh, made a coalition and started sending an army east into the fledgling nation of Israel. As they worked their way east, they sent out three marauding bands. One of these bands turned north. Uh, if you want to look at a map, you can see they went towards uh, Ophrah. One went further, west, uh, further east into the wilderness of Zeboim, and one returned a little bit westward uh, toward Beth Horon. But the main detachment of the army stayed at a place called Michmash. Uh, Michmash is almost dead center in the land of Israel. In response to this, uh, the recently appointed king of Israel moved his makeshift army from eastern Israel uh, down south towards Jerusalem and met these Philistines uh, by going north towards Gilgal. Gibeah. And he made his camp, his final destination, was at a cave in uh, Migron. If you look at a map, Michmash is due north, Migron is due south. And in between these two campsites uh, is a valley 
It's a very rocky gorge that if you look at the north side, they named it uh, Bozes, and the southern side was uh, Senna. Some scholars believe that Bozes means uh, slippery or shiny, uh, referring to the fact that it's a, sh a straight sheet of rock and very difficult to maneuver on. And some scholars believe that Senan means uh, thorny, meaning that at that time there were probably a lot of brambles and brushwood you would have to contend with if you wanted to go down in the valley. So understandably, both these armies sat on the hillsides. Neither one of them wanted to engage the other because if they went down into the valley, not only was it treacherous going down and going up, but you would be fighting an uphill battle. I have not been in the military, but I do know the importance of the high ground. And if you are a Star Wars fan, uh, you will know that Anakin Skywalker learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, you make that mistake one time, okay? Both of these people were sitting, waiting for the other to make a move. But the Philistines had a very distinct advantage. On multiple occasions already, they had made their way into Israel. And as they took territory after territory, uh, they had the wisdom to take the blacksmiths out of the nation. So that when the Israelite army moved out, uh, it was a makeshift army. There were no swords, there were no spears, there were no shields, and there were no pieces of armor, except for the king and the king's son, Jonathan. All that this ragtag army had were agricultural to, uh, tools. Some of them had axes that they had had sharpened by the Philistines. Some of them had sickles that were meant for chopping down wheat. Uh, not exactly something that would instill confidence. When you looked at the Philistine army, they were very well equipped. Swords, shields, spears. People who were well trained from their to make matters worse, uh, the king, the recently appointed King Saul, was not exactly what you would call an A-class leader. People had hoped for a king in Israel. They wanted somebody who would lead them into battle and would take care of them the way that the nations around them had kings who took care of them. And although God said it's not going to turn out the way you thought it would, uh, they decided to set a king up over them anyway. And the person of choice was Saul. But instead of leading them into battle, uh, what we learn about Saul is when he arrived at Migron, south of the encampment of the Philistines, he sat in a cave, waiting, passively watching what would happen from the sidelines. And we know the people of Israel did not find him to be a trustworthy leader because from eastern Israel all the way to his final destination, he was losing troops left and right. He started out with an army of thousands of people. And by the time he got to his final destination, no more than 600 people followed him. And by the way, uh, the Bible characterizes them as following him with fear and trembling. Not exactly your A-class army you would want behind you either. The question is, why 
does the author portray Saul in this moment in this way? If you want to show a successful kingdom, you don't want to put a king in this negative light. But this King Saul is supposed to be a contrast. You see, he is a critic who stays on the sideline waiting for somebody else to make the first move. And what we'll see is that this critical attitude affects how the people of Israel respond. And although his demeanor demoralized most of his army, one person had enough. Saul was king, and he had one son uh, by name in this moment, and his name was Jonathan. He watched his father lose man after man, not through battle, but through lack of initiative. Because Saul was a passive leader, Jonathan grew discontent. There was a trust in his heart that God wanted to do something more in this army, in his nation, than what was being experienced at that moment. And one day, as his father sat in the cave at Migron, Jonathan had had enough. He looked to one young man, the person who carried his armor, and he said, I believe God wants to do something better than what we're seeing right now. Let's go take these Philistines head on. It may be that God will act on our behalf. And then he says the most impressive statement of faith in the Old Testament. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Few statements of faith rival this one in the Old Testament. Many people say, here am I, or they say, here's what we're going to do. But Jonathan's deep-seated trust led him to a holy discontent with the status quo that said, there is something more that God wants to accomplish in our lifetime, in our generation, in our circumstance. And by the way, when he felt this discontent, he did not do it alone. He invited one young man with him. We never learned the name of this young man, only that he was uh, Jonathan's armor bearer. And you see, this faith, this deep-seated trust in what God could do and accomplish in the world was infectious to the young man's heart. King Saul was leader in title and in name, but Jonathan had the faith that would inspire someone to follow him, even when it was difficult. And the young man responds in a most heartfelt way. He said to Jonathan, do everything that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. 
Jonathan's deep-seated trust was not a blind faith, and his action would not be a blind faith either. He enjoyed strategizing what it would look like to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish in the world. He said, here's what we're going to do, and here's the sign that we will know God wants to accomplish this very thing. He said, we're going to go show ourselves to the Philistines. And if they tell us to wait, we're going to wait. But if they tell us to come up to them, then follow me. Because that means God is going to win a victory for all of Israel. This would require doing something incredibly difficult and incredibly dangerous. It meant giving up the security of the high ground for trusting with faith. By going down to the Philistines, they would go down the thorny side of the rocky gorge, and they would wait at the bottom. From there, they could be picked off one by one from archers. They could be absolutely defenseless from spears. And if the Philistines told them to come up, they would have to climb up the slope named Slippery. And not only that, they would have to deal with an onslaught from the very moment their hands reached the top. And yet Jonathan knew God would accomplish his work, not from people standing on the sidelines, but from people engaging in the arena. So they went and they showed themselves to the Philistines. They climbed down the thorny side, down into the valley. And the Philistines, uh, one of their scouts picked up on them and said, hey, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes they've hidden themselves in. So they start taunting Jonathan and this young armor bearer saying, hey, come on up to us. We'll teach you a lesson. What was meant to be an insult turned into the very sign that God wanted to accomplish his good work through Jonathan and through his armor bearer. As soon as he saw the sign, as soon as he heard that little spark, Jonathan did not hesitate, but he looked to his armor and said, come up after me because God has given them into our hands. So they climbed up on their hands and knees up the slippery slope, not knowing what would come next or how God would work. Only with the faith that he would. Holy discontent from a deep-seated trust in God led to an action that would ring through eternity. The very enemy that the people feared, the very enemy that taunted them, who had better equipment, who had more training, who had the high ground in every conceivable upper hand, began to fall one by one 
to Jonathan and his armor bearer. In fact, the story goes that Jonathan, within about an acre of land, which is, give or take, the uh, plot of land we have here on this church, over 20 people fell before him. The very people who taunted him no longer would do that. And what was supposed to be a moment of weakness became a moment of overwhelming strength. The Philistine army began to panic over two people who had the courage to say yes to the adventure of faith. They started turning on each other because they didn't want to fight Jonathan and his armor bearer. And one by one, the detachment of the Philistines began to run away. This holy discontent this engaging faith inspires people who watch from the sidelines. Because Saul's army caught wind of it. His lookouts were watching and said, hey, something's going on in the Philistine camp. And we learned something different about Saul as well. He was a sideline passive leader. He was a critic, not a contender in the arena. As soon as he heard that there was a commotion in the Philistine camp and that some of them were beginning to fall, the very first thing he does is he says, go count people and see who left. He starts barking orders and bossing people around. Instead of rallying people to aid, he kills time by trying to figure out who started this. I've been on a uh, number of mission trips uh, before, just like our friends are going on this morning. And I can remember how long roll, uh, roll call would take for 50 people. If things went smoothly, it would be a couple of minutes. If people were being, uh, <laughs> being funny and trying to uh, hold things up, it could turn into 10 minutes easily. Multiply that by 11. And you'll know it'll take a long time to do a roll call for 600 people in the midst of commotion, in the midst of fear. But they follow along with this order, and they find out the king's own son was missing. His dad didn't even realize he left because he wasn't aware of what was going on. All right. But Saul doesn't go into the fray just yet. In fact... Instead of relying on trusting God, he relies on a religious symbolism. He said, call the ark of God here. At that time, it was believed that uh, the ark symbolized the presence of God. Um, they started using it as a talisman, as a symbol that God was going to be with them wherever they went. By the way, that got them into trouble more than once. As Saul called for the Ark of the Covenant, the tumult in the Philistine camp grew more and more chaotic. And eventually Saul had enough and said, okay, withdraw your hand, we're getting over there. Four commands, four times to boss people around, he finally moves into the arena. And it wasn't his faith that inspired people. It was Jonathan's. 
because not only did those 600 men become courageous in that moment, people who had hidden themselves in the hill country, people who had hidden themselves in tombs to shy away from the Philistines, people who had deserted to the Philistines, began to join Jonathan in this moment. They became contenders in the arena and no longer sideline watchers because of the faith and the holy discontent of two people who said yes to the adventure of faith. And the author tells us in verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. And we get a historical footnote that the battle uh, began to go west, back towards the Philistines' own home country. I wish the story would end there, uh, but it doesn't. In fact, Saul shows another flaw in his character. He saw how his army had been hard-pressed. They didn't have the equipment, the gear. They were barely staying with him as it was. And so he gets it into his head that to inspire them to stay, he has to make an incredibly harsh oath to get them to stay with him. Jonathan said, who knows what God might do in this moment? Saul decides to say, and this is verbatim what he says, Cursed be the person who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Jonathan said, God has given this enemy into the hand of all the people of Israel. Saul makes an incredibly harsh rule that is also deeply selfish. No one's allowed to eat, until that enemy is beaten, and I am avenged. Being part of the arena means that there has to be an aspect of selflessness. Saul learned selfishness does not inspire people. In fact, at the very best, it makes people more afraid. At the very worst, it makes them unhappy and leave. And by the way, people felt that very tangibly. The scripture says twice that they grew faint and they grew very faint because they hadn't eaten anything all day. And I don't know about you, sometimes when uh, there's a little bit of anxiety or fear, uh, you get a little bit hungry. things progressively get worse in this moment. Jonathan wasn't around to hear the proclamation by his dad, the silly rule that no one was allowed to eat. Cursed be the man who eats un uh, until it is evening. And so as he and his men go through, Jonathan sees some honey on the ground. And he grabs the, his staff, picks some of the honey up, takes it, eats it, and uh, he regains some of his 
uh, strength. His eyes literally, scriptures say, became bright. He regained his sight. That moment where he finally got some food back into his system, uh, he gained strength. Someone who was with him had heard the curse from his father and said, Hey, Jonathan, your dad said curse would be the person who eats any food. Jonathan said, that's not how this is supposed to go. To be in the arena means to serve the people around you. My father has acted selfishly and has affected the whole nation. The battle that day was bittersweet. They did win some ground back, and they did kick the Philistines out of their territory. But the victory was not as complete because of this selfish rule. And by the way, uh, when the fighting came to a halt, and evening eclipsed the day, Saul's oath came to an end. And when Saul's oath came to an end, people stopped fighting grabbed all the spoil they could, oxen, goats, sheep, slaughtered them on the spot, and began to eat them raw. A little disgusting in our time frame, uh, but even back then, there was something more significant. Their culture was supposed to look different, and one of the things, one of the ways their culture was supposed to stand out was they weren't supposed to eat blood with the meat. All right, if you're hungry and you've just been fighting all day until it was evening, you don't care about the culture. They just started eating whatever they could, and uh, one guy ran up to Saul and said, hey, these guys are breaking the culture that God set up for us. So Saul, in all of his brilliance, in his critiques, begins to blame them for his mistake. He says, literally, verbatim, you have dealt treacherously. Instead of being to acknowledge his own mistake, saying, I messed up, I should have allowed you to eat, so that way this didn't happen. He says, you are at fault here. The heart of the critic, the heart of the one on the sideline, tends to blame others for their own mistakes. And Saul shows this in this moment. So he gets a giant stone over, starts having them uh, get their food ready there so that way the blood can drain out and they could obey their culture, okay? Things go from bad to worse because finally Saul has the idea of continuing the chase on the Philistines, uh, but one of his buddies, uh, a rejected member of the priesthood, says, hold on one second, Saul. How about you consult God on this idea? So Saul says, okay, that's a great idea. Let's set up and prepare. He said, says, hey, God, should we go pursue the Philistines? Should we continue to uh, engage them? God was silent in that moment. And Saul's first response to the silence of God was to blame the people. He said, hey, there's some sin that happened today. 
and that's affecting my relationship to God. The critic blames Saul's relationship with God, or lack thereof, was not a problem with the people around him. That was his own character issue. And yet, it made sense for him to blame the people around him. So to figure out uh, how to pinpoint this blame, uh, Saul says, okay, we're going to do this the old-fashioned way. We're going to consult two religious stones. Instead of waiting for God to answer, he goes straight to religious stones that were really odd. Uh, He said, okay, if the guilt is in the people, one stone is going to be the answer, uh, Thumim, and the other stone, if, it, if the guilt is in my son Jonathan or myself, then the rock umim will be chosen. We don't exactly know how this worked. It's a little odd, but from what we can understand, the priest would put these rocks in a pocket in his robe. They would say, here's the oath, here's the curse, here's what's going to happen. They would then take out these rocks named thumim and umim, and whichever one was shining uh, a little bit brighter, would be the answer they would expect to be the correct answer from God. All right. There needs to be a little uh, warning that says, do not try this at home. It is unwise to test the will of God by rocks. Hey, okay. It's not something that we're supposed to model. It's supposed to be a contrast with how Jonathan understood uh, how he discerned the will of God. Saul, when his relationship with God was messed up and was lacking, went to religious symbolism. Uh, When Jonathan wanted to know what God wanted him to do, he took action. All right. But as it turned out, the people escaped, and Jonathan and uh, Saul were taken. So Saul said, cast lots between Jonathan and I, and let's finish this up. Uh, The lot was taken, and Jonathan was taken in the lot. And Saul said, tell me now, what you have done. Again, the critic bosses and commands. Jonathan shows a very different spirit. He shows a contender's spirit. He doesn't blame his dad and say, you made a dumb rule and I wasn't there to hear it, so I'm really guiltless in this matter. He doesn't say, I shouldn't be in this position. This is on you for your lack of initiative. He says, I broke your rule. I tasted a little bit of funny. So here I am. I will die. And as compassionate fathers go, uh, Saul was not one. He said, darn right, you're going to die today. In fact, God do so to me and more also if you do not die today, Jonathan. Very strong oath. But the people had enough of Saul in that moment. They said, no. Are you going to put to death the one who worked such a salvation today? Absolutely not. Not one hair from his head is going to fall to the ground because of this. And so with a very interesting choice of words, the author says the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. 
And so the Philistines returned to their own place, and Jonathan, Saul, and his army returned to their home. All right. We have to ask ourselves why this story is in the scriptures. Out of all the things that happened, why is it that this was here? This, this story of Jonathan and Saul tells us about the kind of person God is looking to partner with in the world through his church. We've been studying this idea using this language of uh, being in the arena, and I'll read you this quote one more time from Theodore Roosevelt. He said, It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and by sweat and by blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails daringly, greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Jonathan was a man filled with a passion. He had a holy discontent for the status quo and said, God wants to accomplish something better than what's going on right now, than us just sitting on the sidelines. And so he entered the arena with a deep-seated trust and a deep-seated hope and expectation that God was capable of doing more than what they were experiencing in that moment. We will never reach our full God-given potential sitting on the sideline. If Jonathan was a man who entered the arena with faith, Saul was a critic who sat on the sideline passively. He had no expectation that God wanted to do anything differently than what he was already seeing in the moment. As contenders, we inspire others to join us in the arena. The holy discontent, the hopeful expectation, the trust that Jonathan had inspired others to join him. In fact, whereas Saul only managed to hold 600 men together, uh, in one translation of the uh, scripture, Jonathan, it says that Jonathan influenced over 10 thousand people to join him and take on this challenge. 
we never reach our full God-given potential on our own. Faith is infectious. Faith calls out the best in us, but it looks to inspire the people around us. Some of you have been in the arena of the church for a very long time. Uh, you have been influential uh, for many, many years. Your faith has the potential to inspire people, not through bossing, not through critique, not through barking orders, but by asking the question, what might God accomplish with this yes? So I want to say thank you to those of you who have been in the arena. For those of you who have said yes again and again and again, do not grow weary of doing good because God wants to accomplish something that will have an impact for generations to come. We want to be influential for good in Old Brooklyn here at this church. We don't want to be here for 10 years or 20 years. We want to be here in 100 years because God wants to reach his lost kids in and around this area. He wants to show us that he's not done with this area. Uh, if this is your first time here or if you're relatively new, the year we moved into this building, five churches closed down. That doesn't mean that God was done with this city. It means that they became sideline Christians. They lost the faith that God wanted to do anything different. We have a hope and a discontent that God wants to continue to do his good work to equip people to reach his lost kids here. And as we engage in the arena, there is no room for selfishness. Saul was a sideline critic, and he demoralized every person he encountered. Anyone he had influence over, he uh, made it unpleasant for them. Jonathan had a very different outlook. We will never reach our full potential, our full God-given potential, as individuals and as a church, looking out for only ourselves. Every time we do projects in the community, yesterday we had one of the busiest food distributions uh, we've ever had. Uh, this week we're engaging in the community by serving through Love Week. Uh, every time we serve, we're showing and saying, God wants to do something good in your life. We serve each other in the arena because we will never reach our full God-given potential unless we count others more significant than ourselves. There's also no room for blaming in the arena. I know it can be easy if you uh, have had bad experiences uh, to blame people. It's easy to say this person's at fault because they did this. It's easy to point the finger. But in the arena, if we want to be a contender and not a critic, 
we have to take responsibility and we have to watch out for each other in the arena. We never reach our full God-given potential, blaming each other and pointing out each other's faults. In fact, we reach our full God-given potential when we restore each other gently. Because, by the way, we're prone to make the same mistakes we can point out in others. We reach our full God-given potential when we stick up for each other in the face of criticism. It started to annoy me uh, half a decade ago when I realized that uh, in my own life, people would sometimes uh, pick on my siblings. My response was to do nothing. As a family, we're supposed to stick up for each other. If someone makes fun of my brother or my sister, they might get an earful from me. may not be the most Christian thing I've ever said on the stage, but there you go. I still have some work to do. As the church, what if we would stick up for each other? If someone's bad-mouthing somebody in the church, what if we said, you know, what would it look like to give them the benefit of the doubt? What would it look like to talk to them and try and work things out? We never, uh, we only reach our full God-given potential when we stick up for each other in the face of criticism, and we only do so when we love one another as Christ loved us. Because here is um, the connection. The last verse in this story that we looked at, verse 45, has a very peculiar phrase. The people ransomed Jonathan. In my mind, there are a lot of words uh, that you could use instead of that. They spared the people. Uh, they spared Jonathan. They rescued him. They saved him. They kept him from dying, et cetera, et cetera. All right. The people ransomed Jonathan because of the great salvation, the great victory he accomplished by partnering with God. The crowd, uh, ransom means to buy something, to purchase something, to buy something back. They bought their savior out of the grips of death from uh, Saul. However, 1,000 years after this incident, there would be another man who was condemned to death. This man was claimed to be a savior. And not just the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the world. And this time, there was a crowd surrounding him. But instead of buying him out from death, they screamed for his execution. Because it would not be the crowd ransoming this man. But it would be this man, Jesus Christ, ransoming the chosen people of God people like you and I today out from sin and death. This victory that happened on the cross was not for himself alone. It was for people like you and me. It was not a battle of flesh and blood, of physical territory, but a conflict over eternal souls. Christ was not a passive bystander in the arena. Christ did not bark orders or boss people around. 
Christ did not make dumb rules out of selfish ambitions which would demoralize his followers. Christ did not blame the people around him even when it was their mistakes at large. Christ was not like King Saul. He was like Jonathan. And like Jonathan, he lived out his full purpose. Christ felt a holy discontent for the status quo. He willingly took the challenge head on because of the vision of what God could do for his, uh, for his people. Christ gave the strongest statement of faith when he said to his own father, not my will, but your will be done. Christ stepped into the ultimate arena when no one else could. He took responsibility for us by ransoming, ransoming us when we made mistakes. And Christ's victory was not a victory for one person or one nation, but for all who call on his name. And for thousands of years, Christ has invited and inspired men and women like you and I in the church to step up and take the adventure of faith, to step into the arena, to take the challenge head on by faith. If you have been part of the arena for a while, continue to step out in faith. Remember that God's best work has not happened yet. And if you have not joined the arena, my encouragement, the encouragement from this story, is enter the arena by faith. There is so much more that God wants to accomplish in your life and through your life than you could ever imagine. Our dear Heavenly Father, how awesome, how glorious is your name. That in your limitless capacity, you would choose to partner with men and women like us in our day and our age. We thank you that you are not done yet. We trust and we have an expectation that the best work you want to accomplish has not happened yet. Dear God, I pray that you would give us the faith to trust you when things are difficult. When we have uphill battles, I pray that we would not stay on the sideline, but that we would walk by faith, that we would take the challenge head on, that we would enter the arena. I pray that we would treat each other in the right kind of way, that we would inspire each other and not demoralize people around us. And dear God, I pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified in us in this city of old Brooklyn, and I pray that he would be honored. Would you please help us, I pray. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen.